What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the JT Sports Podcast. I'm your host, JT. On here, give you guys my thoughts to the LA Chargers Monday night win over the New York Jets. I got some interesting takeaways from the Bengals win over the Buffalo Bills on Sunday night football. We got to get into the last Bedlam game ever. Oklahoma State derailed the Sooners playoff hopes. And we also got an update concerning Michigan's sign-stealing scandal. What's the latest that's going on with that? Before we get into it, Make sure that you leave a like, subscribe to the channel. Remember that we're not just a YouTube channel. Every episode of the podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts from. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, the JT Sports Podcast is available. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, leave us with a five-star review. Share the podcast with your friends, family members, and acquaintances. And lastly, follow us on our social media platforms. You can connect with us. Submit any questions that you want answered on the show via the DMs on Instagram and Twitter. I know it's called X, but we're still calling it Twitter until we update the graphics. You can follow us on Instagram at JT Sports underscore and on X or Twitter at JT Sports underscore underscore. <clears throat> now let's get into it. The Los Angeles Chargers dominated the New York Jets on Monday Night Football. This game wasn't really close. And a big reason why the Jets lost this game is because they got a poverty offense. And when you got a poverty offense that is going three and out nearly every single drive, you can't get any big plays downfield. It's not a consistent recipe to being able to win games. You see, Having a great defense is what you need to win a championship, but you can't win a championship or even be a playoff team in the AFC where your offense is below average at best. The New York Jets, them having a good game on offense is them scoring 20 points. And if that is, you know, your peak performance on offense, you got a lot of problems. The New York Jets, the way they want to win games is by keeping things low scoring, and that's okay. That's a formulaic way to try to win games, but that also involves your offense not turning the football over, which is something that the Jets failed to do tonight. They had three fumbles, which the Chargers recovered two out of three of those, and then two of those fumbles led to 14 points, which gave the Chargers more momentum. The New York Jets offense with Zach Wilson at the helm at quarterback is god-awful. He was overthrowing nearly every open wide receiver during the first half of this game. He was 2 of 8 on, on throws down the field. He overthrew Garrett Wilson a couple of times. He got one wide receiver killed in the middle of the field. The Jets should have traded for Joshua Dobbs. I don't get why they thought... Going with Zach Wilson for the remainder of the season gave them the best chance to win the game. Who cares about potential? Potential doesn't win you games. It gets you fired. At this point, we know what Zach Wilson is. He's a bottom-tier backup quarterback. He's one of the worst backups in the league. Joshua Dobbs would have given the New York Jets a way better chance to win this game than what Zach Wilson did. And the only offense that the Jets have is Brees Hall and Garrett Wilson. That's the problem. There's a reason why they attempted to trade for Devontae Adams at the trade deadline. Now, of course, it doesn't help the fact that the offensive line was just as bad as the quarterback play. They gave up seven, eight sacks in this game. The Jets offensively, they don't have enough to make it to the postseason. Anytime they're matched up against one of the better offenses or the better teams in the league, they're going to lose more times than not. Of course, they may be able to pull off an upset or two, like how they did against the Philadelphia Eagles, but that involves your defense playing at an all-world level and you being on the winning end of the turnover battle. It's a blessing anytime the Jets can get in position to make a field goal because they don't get those opportunities too often. And their defense is good enough to shut down most of the offenses that they play. If you take away the 14 points that they gifted the Chargers due to those two out of three fumbles that L.A. received, this game could have been a one-possession matchup at one point. 
But you see, when you're limited at quarterback, you got a bad offensive coordinator, a bad offensive line, and your two best players are a wide receiver and a running back. How many points can your offense consistently generate that's going to give you a realistic chance of being able to win games? If your offense can't give you more than 20 points per game, you're putting your defense at a massive disadvantage. And then when you go 3 of 17 on third down, that means that your defense is on the field for way more plays than what they need to be. And obviously in the fourth quarter, you could see this New York Jets defense get worn out and tired for carrying this damn team on their fucking back. Justin Herbert, he didn't have a great game outside of a couple of big throws, one that he made to Keenan Allen late in this game. The Jets defense did a really good job at getting after Justin Herbert, slowing down the rushing attack, but it just isn't enough when you got a bare-bones offense. This offense, even if Aaron Rodgers comes back, isn't really going to be all that improved. Now, of course, it's going to help the fact that you got a competent quarterback back there, and it'll be a lot easier to get the 20-24 points. But even with Aaron Rodgers coming back, if he's able to play during the regular season from this Achilles injury, how much better are the Jets going to be offensively? It's not like they're going to go from what they are right now to one of the best offenses in the league. They need another wide receiver to pair alongside Garrett Wilson, and they need drastic help on the offensive line. You see, the Jets are a great value brand version of what the Pittsburgh Steelers are right now. I'm pretty sure Jets fans in the heartbeat would take Kenny Pickett over Zach Wilson any day of the week. Now, it's not like Kenny Pickett is all that better than Zach Wilson, but there's a difference between having one of the worst starting quarterbacks in the league under center versus one of the worst backups in the NFL underneath center. The LA Chargers are not a great team. Yes, they are now starting to get back on the winning end of things. They finally got to 500, but the only reason they're able to win these games is because they're going up against bad teams. When the Chargers have to go up against a team that's just as talented and also more well-coached than them, they end up losing because Brandon Staley is a bad head coach because his defenses are not good. The reason why his defense looks so good tonight is because the front seven was able to be the superstars in this game and Zach Wilson wasn't good enough to expose the Chargers' bad secondary play. You see, the New York Jets... I get why everybody was so optimistic about this franchise when they traded for Aaron Rodgers. And when Aaron Rodgers went down, we all knew that this pretty much was going to be the end for the New York Jets playoff hopes. Now, of course, they still got the opportunity to backdoor their way and to maybe get in the six or seven seed. But I don't think the Jets are going to be able to finish with a better record than any of the second place teams in the AFC North. There's a possibility that maybe all four teams from the AFC North get into the playoffs. Do you really think that the Jets are going to be able to have a better record than the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Cleveland Browns, or the Cincinnati Bengals? Can they even have a better record than the Buffalo Bills right now or any other team that's in contention for the seventh seed? Not with this offense. When you're playing in a conference this tough, that's dominated, by the majority of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, having a great defense is only going to get you so far if your offense sucks water through a garden hose, all right? The three fumbles obviously didn't help when you're trying to win with this style of football, turnovers and ball security are key. And Garrett Wilson had a fumble. Zach Wilson had a strip sack by Joey Bosa. Plus, the Chargers also got some assistance on special teams. The way the Chargers won tonight is the way that the New York Jets have to win every single game. They need help from the special teams. They need great defensive performance. And they need their quarterback to make big throws in big situations, which is what Justin Herbert was able to do for the Chargers despite their struggles on offense in this matchup. The poverty offense of the New York Jets is the main reason why they lost this game, and it's the main reason why this team is in a dogfight nearly every single week. They barely struggled to beat. They barely were able to beat a struggling New York Giants team with a backup quarterback. So what made you think that they were going to be able to outgun a Chargers team that even with them having one of the worst coaches in the NFL? That really wasn't going to make a difference when you got one of the worst quarterbacks starting in league right now.
So it's pretty apparent why the Jets lost this game the way they did. This offense stinks. You got a trash quarterback. You got a trash offensive coordinator. You got a trash offensive line. Like, I see why these coaches were up all night long when Aaron Rodgers got injured because they had so much banking on this dude being able to stay healthy. And when your team's success on the offense revolves around a 40-year-old quarterback, you got some major issues, even with him coming back. There's a reason why he got injured. The offensive line set him up to get injured. Let me know how you guys feel about the Chargers 27-6 win over the New York Jets. For some reason, the Buffalo Bills just can't seem to beat the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals got the win against Buffalo Sunday night 24-18. And there was never a time during this game where you were watching the outcome of this game and you felt like the Bills had a chance to win. Joe Burrow and company just seemed to have all the answers for Sean McDermott's defense. And Joe Burrow picked up from where he left off and his previous performance against the San Francisco 49ers. I mean, he was just dotting up this Buffalo Bills defense. He was hitting deep plays downfield to T. Higgins. Jamar Chase couldn't be covered. And Cincinnati... Didn't have a lot of success running the football. Just like Buffalo didn't have a lot of success running the football in this game. But Joe Burrow outclassed and outperformed Josh Allen for the second straight matchup that these two teams played in. Joe Burrow outplayed Josh Allen in the divisional round game that they played in last year when they won 27-10. And this game went the same way similarly to how the last game went in the playoffs between these two teams for Buffalo. What did I say Buffalo needed to do to be able to beat Cincinnati? They needed to play complimentary football, not overly relying on Josh Allen, not just throwing the football, but running the football. And that didn't happen because who was leading the Buffalo Bills in rushing yards in this game? Josh Allen. They didn't get no assistance from James Cook or any of the other running backs that they had on this roster. And the Bills... Utilizing Josh Allen's legs is definitely something that you have to do if you can't get the other running backs on your team going. But the Bengals, they didn't allow Josh Allen to get outside the pocket, extend plays on third downs, and keep the drives alive with his legs. Like They did a really good job at making sure that Josh Allen didn't beat them with his legs, rather if it was on design quarterback runs or rather when he decided to get outside the pocket when nobody was open. They had a spy on him nearly every single play. They basically said, hey, Josh Allen, if you're going to beat us, you're going to have to make good decisions from within the pocket, which is also something that Josh Allen struggled to do in this game and the reason why Joe Burrow has such the advantage in this matchup over Josh Allen is because Josh Allen is a reckless player at times he tends to throw caution to the wind sometimes it pays off and sometimes it backfires and when you're going up against a quarterback like Joe Burrow that's so cerebral that does a really good job at taking care of the football you cannot afford mistakes because he's going to make you pay every single time there's a reason why a lot of people think that Joe Burrow right now is is this generation's version of Tom Brady. Because although Tom Brady wasn't as talented as guys like Aaron Rodgers and some of the other great quarterbacks that he's matched up against throughout his Hall of Fame career, what did Tom Brady do so well in his career that made him the greatest quarterback of all time? He rose his game up in the big moments and he also took care of the football. Joe Burrow does both of those things well. In the full quarter of games, you can trust him with the lead. You can trust him from behind. You can't say the same thing about Josh Allen. Josh Allen is this great player, but he's too nuclear. One game, he could go off and have a big-time MVP caliber performance, and then the next game, he could struggle and cost you with his costly mistakes. Buffalo's defense we know that they've been dealing with some significant injuries. We get that. But around this time of the NFL season, everybody's dealing with injuries. Everybody's banged up. So you got to find a way to overcompensate for that. And I'm starting to realize that Sean McDermott, his defense 
is a big issue why the Buffalo Bills are not just unable to beat Cincinnati, but why they continue to disappoint in the playoffs every year. Sean McDermott got outcoached by Zach Taylor. Sean McDermott calls the plays for the Bills defense, and Zach Taylor calls the plays for the Bengals offense. And Zach Taylor was coaching circles around the Buffalo Bills defense. And even when the Bills defense was able to get stopped, they didn't do too much with it. At halftime, this game was 21-7. The Bengals had the lead. And even when Buffalo late was able to make this a close game and it became 24-18, you never really felt like the Bills were going to have a shot at winning this thing. Look at what the Bengals did, their final possession. They ran the clock out. The Bills' defense couldn't get their offense another opportunity. Sean McDermott's defense is a large reason why Cincinnati continues to own this team. Joe Burrow should pretty much have minority ownership of this Buffalo Bills franchise because every time they play, he owns this defense and he owns Josh Allen. I know it may sound a little bit controversial and harsh to say that, but it's the truth. When is the last time Josh Allen has outplayed Joe Burrow? I can't remember it. It hasn't been recently. It may be a couple of years ago, but I can't recall the last time Josh Allen looked like the better quarterback on the field when these two teams played. The Bengals just have all the answers against the Buffalo Bills, and the Bills' Super Bowl window, I don't think it's closed. I think the Super Bowl window for the Bills is open just as much as it's open for the other teams in the conference, such as the Ravens, the Jacksonville Jaguars. But the difference between the Bills not being able to get over the hump hasn't been talent. I don't think it's been all that much coaching. It's just been the fact that they can't find a way to stop the two best quarterbacks in the NFL, that being Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow. That was a large reason why a lot of quarterbacks weren't able to win Super Bowls during the Tom Brady era, because Brady and the Patriots were just that dominant. Josh Allen is the kind of quarterback that doesn't equate to championship football. He is talented enough to win you a Super Bowl. I'm not saying that he's not an elite quarterback. All I'm saying is with his recklessness and his aggressiveness and his style of play, he's going to cost you a lot of big games in the postseason. And when you're going up against quarterbacks that take care of the football, that are efficient and methodical, you're going to end up on the losing end of things if you're Sean McDermott. Your defense is already struggling. You can't afford a Josh Allen turnover or a Josh Allen reckless decision. And you also got to be able to get consistent pressure on Joe Burrow. When the Bills came into this game, Throughout the week, they were saying, oh, we only lost that game in the postseason because the snow. Well, I didn't really see too much of a difference. It doesn't matter if you're playing Cincinnati in the rain, sleet, or snow, you're still getting your buck kicked. This game never really felt like the Bills had a chance. And my homeboy Juice was telling me the Bills are going to win. They're finally going to get one on Cincinnati. I doubt that. Joe Burrow just has Josh Allen's number, and he also has the recipe to carving up Sean McDermott's defense. Until the Bills are able to play complimentary football and they can find a way to get consistent pressure on Joe Burrow and Josh Allen can find a way to stop getting outclassed by Burrow, the Bills, not only are they going to struggle to beat teams like Cincinnati, but they're going to continue to come up short in the postseason. This has nothing to do with Super Bowl window. This has everything to do with execution. There's no such thing as a Super Bowl window. Nearly every single year, half the league has an opportunity to win the Super Bowl. There are teams that make it to the championship game that nobody expected. When the Bengals went to the Super Bowl in 2021, nobody saw that thing coming. They weren't even expected to finish no more than third place at best in the AFC North in 2021. But the difference is that they have Joe at quarterback. And even when Josh Allen plays his best games, the defense plays their worst games. The Bills just can't find a way to put a good enough team on the field that suited the slowdown this Bengals offense, and this Bengals team. And maybe after this season, they need to part ways with Sean McDermott. That doesn't mean he's a bad coach, but sometimes you have coaches 
who reach a certain level with the organization where they can't elevate that franchise anymore. We've seen it with Andy Reid with the Philadelphia Eagles. We've seen it with Tony Dungy, his early years with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and maybe we're starting to see Buffalo peak under Sean McDermott. Maybe for Buffalo to get over the hump, they need to go out there and hire an offensive-minded coach. But the Bengals own the Buffalo Bills, and Joe Burrow has minority ownership of this franchise and Josh Allen as well. And for the people, I don't even want to move on yet. I still got one more thing to say. When Josh Allen got announced as the cover athlete of Madden this year, I was saying this makes no sense. He's not better than Joe Burrow, and I don't even think I will put him over Lamar Jackson or even Jalen Hurts. And Bills fans got really defensive, and they made all the excuses in the world for Josh Allen, saying Josh Allen ain't had no run game. Josh Allen ain't had no great offensive line. Josh Allen ain't have this. He ain't have that. Well, Joe Burrow in this game, he didn't have a consistent run game neither, and they still won. So what's your excuse now? You can only make so more excuses, so much excuses for a guy like Josh Allen before you finally can look at him and say, you know what? Maybe he's the problem. Maybe Sean McDermott's the problem. If it keeps on happening, that means that you have a common culprit responsible for getting the same outcome. You know, I get mad when I have my friends who call me about the same situation that they continue to put themselves in. And you see, with Bills fans, they continue to get outclassed by the Chiefs and the Bill, or the Chiefs and the Bengals. And what's the reason? Josh Allen and Sean McDermott. Even when Josh Allen plays well, the defense never shows up. And even if the Bills defense is able to show up and have a good performance, Josh Allen just makes too many mistakes throughout the game where he can't put you in position to beat a guy like Joe Burrow. The Bengals get their fourth straight win of the season with their 24-18 win over the Bills, and the Bills drop to 5-4 and four on the year. You know, going into this season, there was a sentiment around Seattle that the Seahawks were good enough to win the Super Bowl as long as they had a good enough team around Geno Smith. Now, when Geno Smith during this past offseason, got that three-year extension worth $75 million. Not too many people felt it was a bad move because everybody looked at Seattle's roster and they say, well, Geno Smith has great receivers. You draft JSN in the first round. You got Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf. You got a really good offensive line. You got a really good group of running backs with Zach Charbonnet and Kenneth Walker that there's enough talent around Geno Smith for him to take Seattle to the Super Bowl as long as he can give you solid quarterback play. Plus, you're playing in a conference where the only elite quarterback that you have to go up against right now is Jalen Hurts in the postseason potentially. So it kind of made sense for Geno Smith to get that three-year extension from Seattle. And if you're a Seahawks fan, you were right to have a lot of optimism that Geno Smith was good enough to give you a championship caliber team, even if he isn't as good as a guy like Jalen Hurts or Joe Burrow or Patrick Mahomes. But this season, though, he's looked completely different from the Geno Smith that we saw in 2022. In 2022, Geno Smith went from not riding back, playing like an MVP candidate, to a year later, playing like a below average quarterback and looking like a guy who needs to be replaced. Now, Against the Cincinnati Bengals, right, it wasn't all his fault why Seattle lost that game. The offensive line didn't really do him no favors. The run game wasn't as consistent as it needed to be. But at the end of the day, though, Seattle still had the opportunity to win that game, and Geno Smith coughed it up with costly red zone interceptions. And even when you look at this blowout loss that Seattle suffered recently to the Baltimore Ravens, yes, the Ravens were just a way more talented football team and Seattle didn't show up for that game and you just can't put it all on Geno Smith. Geno Smith had bad decision making. He also was inaccurate. He's not really great with pressure in his face. Geno Smith is holding back Seattle and it looks like Seattle got fool's gold when they re-signed Geno Smith to that three-year extension. 
They should have just went ahead and drafted a quarterback in this past year's NFL draft and tried to groom Geno Smith's future replacement. And now Seattle's in a situation where although they're going to be able to get out of this contract because they got it out in 2024 where they only take a $17.4 million dead cap hit. But even then, you know, what were the better options that were out there on the quarterback market? Seattle could have went out there and offered Lamar Jackson a contract extension. And Lamar could have been an upgrade over Geno Smith this year. You could have drafted a Will Levis or maybe traded up for Bryce Young or CJ Stroud in the 2023 NFL draft and secure the future of your quarterback position for the next couple of decades. But instead, you go to Rod and say, you know what? We're going to keep Geno Smith. He had one good season. We got a good enough team and a good enough coaching staff to support Geno Smith. But Geno Smith, he's not holding up his end of the bargain. He's running back right now. It's funny how we said that he didn't write back last year. Well, he's definitely writing back to a lot of doubters this season. Geno Smith is not good enough for the Seattle Seahawks to even win a playoff game. They may be able to make it to the playoffs with Geno Smith, but that's only because the teams that they have to go up against don't really have any elite quarterbacks. Anytime we've seen Geno Smith matched up against an elite quarterback, it hasn't really gone in Seattle's favor. He got outplayed by Joe Burrow. He got outplayed by Lamar Jackson. He completed under 50% of his passes. That's inexcusable with the team that Geno Smith had around him. And yes, the Baltimore Ravens did have just an overall great game. Everything seemed to work for them. But when nothing's going right for you, when you have an elite quarterback like Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes or Joe Burrow, they can bail you out. They can carry your team. Geno Smith isn't the kind of quarterback that can carry your team. When Geno Smith is at his best is when Seattle has Kenneth Walker and Zach Charbonnet going. If you can't play complimentary football and you find yourselves in games where Seattle just has to throw the ball 40, 50 times with Geno Smith to lead you to a win, that's a winning recipe for failure. Now, I still believe that Seattle is going to be a playoff team this year, but I don't think they're going to make it to the Super Bowl. And you may be like, JT, why are you mentioning Seattle and Super Bowl in the same breath? Well, because idiotically, I picked this team to make it to the Super Bowl. My Super Bowl prediction for this year was Seattle versus Cincinnati because I thought that Geno Smith would give this team at least top 12, top 10 quarterback play. You know, I was thinking there can be no difference between Kirk Cousins and Geno Smith, but Kirk Cousins, prior to his entry, played like a top five quarterback. Geno Smith has looked like a below average, average at best quarterback. He looks like a bridge quarterback, one of those quarterbacks that can give you okay quarterback play, keep you afloat, but he's not going to be able to win you the big games and you're not going to be able to do anything with him in the playoffs. Seattle got fooled by Geno Smith. He had that one good season in 2022, and it seems like this dude has just bounced back to the Geno Smith that we saw prior to the Russell Wilson trade happening. And everybody was laughing when Seattle was the winners of the Russell Wilson trade, and they still are. But when you look at the quarterback play that you're getting out of Geno Smith, the trade doesn't look as one-sided as you may think. Because Geno Smith hasn't even been better than Russell Wilson this season. I think that they've played on pretty much the same level. And if you give Russell Wilson, even with them looking like he's lost a lot compared to what he was in his prime with JSN, a better offensive line, DK and Tyler Lockett, I don't think there's any difference between Russell Wilson in 2023 versus 2023 Geno Smith. Last year, Geno Smith had 30 touchdowns and 11 interceptions. Right now, he has seven interceptions right now. He's easily going to throw way more picks than what he threw last season. He threw a really nice deep ball. Well, there hasn't really been a lot of big plays downfield for the Seattle Seahawks. You see DK Metcalf getting frustrated pretty often because he's not getting targeted often. Where the hell has Tyler Lockett been? The Seattle Seahawks got fooled into giving Geno Smith an extension. And although it's not an extension that is bad like how the Daniel Jones extension is because they do have a way to get out of this, but you're still going to have to eat a good amount of cap space. And I don't think it makes sense to cut Geno Smith. 
it would make sense just to go ahead, draft the quarterback at the back end of next year's NFL draft, maybe a Bo Nix, a Michael Penix, a Quinn Ewers, and let that guy sit behind Geno Smith until Geno Smith regresses to the point where you got to start the young guy. There are Seahawks fans that feel like Geno Smith should get benched right now, but do you really think that Drew Locke can give you better quarterback play than Geno Smith? Because you can get a lot worse out of what you're getting right now from the QB position out of Drew Locke. We don't know if Drew Locke is all that good. You may say, JT, we got to give the man a chance. You can't give Drew Locke a chance in a situation like this where you still have a lot to play for. You still have the opportunity to win the NFC West. You still have an opportunity to remain in playoff contention. Now, if you feel like Geno Smith is so bad that you got to start Drew Locke, then okay, but you don't start Drew Locke for the reasons we got to see what he has. No, you do that when you have nothing else to play for. If Seattle was in a situation like the New York Giants and they pretty much were in tank for Caleb Williams mode, then yes, it would make sense to see what Drew Locke has. But Geno Smith is still a better quarterback than Drew Locke. Drew Locke, he didn't look bad in the preseason, but there's a reason why Geno Smith won the quarterback competition over Drew Locke last year. If Drew Locke was truly that good, he would be starting over Geno Smith right now. I don't think going to Drew Locke gives you a shot. You may feel like we need to see what he has, but you don't take a gamble or a dice roll like that at this point in the season. You only do that when you're out of playoff contention. The Seattle Seahawks got fooled into thinking that Geno Smith was good enough to lead this team to a championship, and I did too. You know, like, I thought that Geno Smith was going to be able to pick up from where he left off last year because the team around him was just too good for him to regress. But we've seen over the last couple of years, guys like Blake Bortles get extensions, and after they get extensions, they fall off. Same thing with Daniel Jones. If you have questions about a guy being good enough to get you to a Super Bowl, I think that shows you how you need to go ahead and try to upgrade that position. Geno Smith, I like the brother. I love him as a person. But right now, he doesn't look it at quarterback for Seattle. You know, I think that the AFC runs through three teams right now. Either the Bengals or the Ravens are going to win this conference. Kansas City doesn't have the firepower on offense to be able to outduel Cincinnati and Baltimore. Even if Kansas City gets the one seed, Lamar Jackson and Joe Burrow are good enough to go on the road and come away with the win in Arrowhead. Joe Burrow already beat Patrick Mahomes in the AFC Championship game before to make it to the Super Bowl. So we already know that Joe Burrow is good enough to do it before he can do it again, especially with Cincinnati. These offensive line playing at a way higher level than what it has been the past two years. Meanwhile, you look at the Baltimore Ravens, you may say, oh, JT, the Ravens always do good in the regular season when Lamar Jackson's healthy, but when they get into the playoffs with Lamar, he comes up short. He's a choker. And if you say that about Lamar, I think that you're right, but you're also wrong in a sense. Yes, Lamar Jackson has came up short in the postseason a good amount of times, but He hasn't had the same level of talent to work with that guys like Mahomes and Joe Burrow have had in the past when they made deep playoff runs and they made it to the Super Bowl. You see, now Lamar Jackson has an even playing field. He has a a talented group of wide receivers, Zay Flowers, OBJ, Rashad Bateman. You got Mark Andrews at tight end. You got a really good running game still. You got to upgrade with the guy calling your plays and Todd Munkin, that offensive coordinator, and you got one of the best defenses, arguably the best defense in the league right now. Lamar Jackson has enough talent around him where there's no more excuses why he can't take the Baltimore Ravens to the promised land. And the Bengals, they started out this season really slow. Joe Burrow, he struggled early due to that calf injury that he suffered during training camp but now with him fully healthy Joe Burrow has bounced right back to form he completed his first 19 passes against the 49ers and he dominated the Buffalo Bills who've had the top five defense up to this point even with injuries and having no run game in that game 
We see Joe Burrow operating at peak performance. We see Lamar Jackson playing like the MVP candidate. Lamar Jackson's 2023 season so far has been way better than what his 2019 campaign was the year he won unanimous MVP. You see, I was telling people after Kansas City won the Super Bowl last year, when everybody was quick to say, oh, they're going to be the next dynasty, I was quick to tell people, hold on on that. Because there are too many talented quarterbacks in this conference for Mahomes to just go roughshod and continue to dominate the way Brady was. You see, Brady was able to dominate because, for one, he was in a weak division, and for two, there weren't really too many great quarterbacks that he had to go up against every single year outside of Peyton Manning and Ben Roethlisberger occasionally, which Bill Belichick would coach circles around those guys. You see, Patrick Mahomes still is the best quarterback in the NFL right now, but the gap between Patrick Mahomes and the rest of the other quarterbacks in the AFC is not that big. Shoot, if Joe Burrow wins the Super Bowl this year, then people are already going to start saying that Joe Burrow and Patrick Mahomes are on the same playing field. People already kind of want to say that. Joe Burrow took a Bengals team to the Super Bowl behind the worst offensive line in the National Football League in 2021. Lamar Jackson, anytime he's healthy, the Ravens are always in contention for the one seed. And you see, Kansas City's defense has been outstanding, but their offense has been fairly inconsistent. They're barely struggling to get the 20 points. You look at Baltimore right now, when their offense is efficient and nobody's dropping passes, this is one of the most difficult offenses to stop. Same thing with the defense. Cincinnati always plays quarterbacks like Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen really well because they got one of the best coaching staffs in the National Football League. Lou Anarumo, the Bengals defensive coordinator, he's most likely going to be a head coach next year. Same thing with their offensive coordinator, even though we don't know how much of a say he has in play calling. You see, what the Ravens and Bengals both have that a lot of people don't talk about is really great coaching staffs. And when you look at the teams that make deep playoff runs, they normally have coaches on their staffs that end up becoming head coaches. Look at Philadelphia. When they went to the Super Bowl, they lost both of their coordinators. They lost their OC to the coach and their defensive coordinator, Jonathan Gannon, to the Arizona Cardinals. Both of these teams have the formula to being able to knock off Kansas City. I still don't believe that Kansas City is the best team in the AFC right now. I think it's either the Bengals or the Ravens. And you don't got to have the best record in the NFL or the best record at the moment to make that statement. Yeah, the Ravens are 7-2 and two on top of the AFC North, but some people are going to say, well, JT, the Bengals don't have the best record. Record isn't a clear indicator of how good a team is at that moment. You're not always what your record says you are. Take, for example, like the LA Chargers. They're a 500 team right now. Do you truthfully believe that the Chargers are good enough to win a playoff game? Come on, man. Like, another clear indicator is the Baltimore Ravens. They're 7 and 2, but yet people still think that Philadelphia is the best team in the league because they got the best record. If you watch Baltimore play, they blew out Seattle and they blew out Detroit, two really good teams, two teams that are locked to make it to the playoffs in the NFC and probably are going to win a playoff game. You look at Cincinnati, they beat the 49ers pretty convincingly, pretty handily, and then they recently just beat the Buffalo Bills, and although the score may say 24-18, that game was 21-7 at halftime at one point. The Bengals are on a four-game losing streak. They always start out slow. Right, there's people who were kind of forgetting about the Cincinnati Bengals at one point. You talk about teams that should be in the conversation to make it out of the AFC. You got people talking about the Ravens, the Chiefs, the Jaguars, and the Dolphins, but just forgot about the Bengals and forgetting that Joe Burrow wasn't himself. Now that Joe Burrow is fully healthy, he's good enough to get the Bengals over the hump against Kansas City. Like People make Kansas City seem like they're just such this giant and they're just such well-oiled that no matter what, you can never count out Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. Like Why is it that we can never count out Patrick Mahomes? I mean, yes, we get that he's one of the greatest quarterbacks of this generation. They got a great head coach, but let's stop acting like Mahomes has never lost in the playoffs before. Joe Burrow beat him in Arrowhead in 2021. You mean to tell me that he can't do it again? He damn near did it last year.
Lamar Jackson has the best defense in the NFL statistically right now and one of the best rosters in the whole entire AFC. So he also has the firepower to be able to get it done. With the way Lamar Jackson has been throwing the football, he's able to go out there and outdo a Patrick Mahomes because let's be honest, if I were to ask you who's the scariest quarterback in the NFL, you're probably going to say Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson with his dual threat ability, arguably one of the fastest players in the league, his ability to operate the intermediate, short, quick passing game has been really impressive. And you couple that with the fact that if even if his all his wide receivers get covered and nobody's open, he can still get out of the pocket, improvise, and buy times for receivers to get open, or he's a threat to take it to the house anytime he chooses to scramble, or if the Ravens want to run design quarterback runs. It's just pick your poison with the Baltimore Ravens. It's either you try to game plan to slow down the passing game and they can beat you on the ground with the run game or you can game plan to stop the run and they can beat you over the top with the pass with Lamar Jackson. You see, the AFC is going to come down to either the Bengals or the Ravens. Some people may say Jacksonville. I don't think Jacksonville has the talent on defense yet to be able to beat the Bengals or the Ravens. If you need a big stop late, who are you going to trust? The Bengals, the Ravens, or the Jaguars defense? I'm going with the teams that have the ability to consistently get after the quarterback because that's what matters the most when you're in third down situations. You got Trey Hendrickson, Sam Hubbard, DJ Reader. The Ravens have plenty of guys and plenty of depth on that defensive line to get after the quarterback. So if you were to ask me right now, who do I think we're going to see in the AFC championship game? I think it's either going to be the Ravens or the Bengals unless these two teams match up before then. Maybe in the wild card round, maybe in the divisional round, but one of these two teams is going to be representing the AFC in the Super Bowl this year. They got really loaded rosters. They don't really have any significant weaknesses on any side of the football. Yeah, they may have certain positions. That may give you a little bit area of concern, like the secondary for Baltimore and Cincinnati is a little young, not really all that consistent, but I still think it's good enough to be able to beat Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs with the Chiefs wide receivers not really being all that great. Their best receiver outside of Travis Kelsey, who's a tight end, has been Rasheed Rice, a rookie out of SMU, was a day two selection in this past year's draft. That's not enough to be able to beat the Bengals and the Ravens. And Kansas City's offensive line also is the worst that has been in the past two, three seasons. The two best teams in the AFC right now are the Bengals and the Ravens. And I think one of these two teams are going to end up making it out of the AFC and making it to the Super Bowl. Before we move on to our college football section of the podcast, if you haven't already, Leave a like, subscribe to the channel. Remember that we go live after Sunday night and Monday night, Thursday night football. We're not just a YouTube channel. Every episode of the podcast is available in audio format on all podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from. The JT Sports Podcast is available. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, leave us with the five-star review. We are greatly appreciated. All you got to do is type in the JT Sports Podcast on Apple and Spotify and it will pop up. Or you can go down to the description down below and give us a five-star review that way. There's the links to Apple and Spotify versions of the podcast down below. But don't leave out here without giving us a five-star review. If you like the podcast, you support what we're doing, you want to show your appreciation, go ahead and give us a five-star review. It only takes 30 seconds to do, and plus, it's free. Now, this past Saturday... We saw the last game between Oklahoma State and Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State ended Oklahoma's playoff hopes. Oklahoma, I never felt like this team was a serious contender to make it to the college football playoffs, and I was really shocked when they beat Texas. And after they beat Texas, they haven't looked like the same team that we saw prior to that win happening. It's like... They put all their energy into beating Texas, which looks like their Super Bowl up to this point. And after that, this team has tremendously seen a big drop off in their level of play. They struggled to beat UCF. They barely made it out alive in that game. They lost to Kansas and they just got blasted 
27 to 24 against Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State, during this game, they look like the better team in this matchup. And even though Oklahoma has way more five and four star players, Oklahoma State just was a better football team. They look better coach. Like Jeff Levy, Sooner fans have been really unhappy with him all season long. The conservative play calling has been an issue. And then the questionable play calling has been an issue. There was a point in this game when Oklahoma tried to do like a trick play. I think they tried to do a halfback toss and it went all wrong and it resulted in a fumble and they gave Oklahoma State the ball back. And even if you do feel like Oklahoma State wasn't more talented than Oklahoma, the keys to upsets happening is one, being on the road, which Oklahoma was, two, losing the turnover battle, which Oklahoma lost three to one, and then this wasn't just the first time Oklahoma has struggled with taking care of the football. They struggled taking care of the football against Kansas, and that's the same reason they lost to the Jayhawks. The same reason why Kansas lost to the Jayhawks is a similar reason why they're on the losing end of the last game of Bedlam, and I'm glad that Oklahoma State ended this rivalry game if this truly is the last time we ever see these two teams play with the L because Oklahoma was not this team that people made them out to be you see they beat Texas and all of a sudden people had a lot of optimism saying oh yeah like Oklahoma is a lock to make it to the big 12 and I was saying no like this team is not what you think even in their win against SMU they won that game 28 to 11 they struggled in that game I was never convinced that the Sooners were going to be able to go all the way. And I never thought that they were going to be able to get out of the regular season with just one loss. I felt like they had at least two or three coming. You see, I believe in Brent Venables. I think that Brent Venables is a good coach, but I don't know if he's a championship caliber coach. You see, Oklahoma, they still don't have a lot of depth on the defensive line. Their pass rush is really inconsistent. Their defensive line is really inconsistent. Oklahoma State was whamming the ball against Oklahoma's defensive front in this game. The same way Kansas has success running the football against this defensive front. This offense, they don't got a lot of depth and talent at wide receiver. Yeah, they got a couple of guys that are really solid and really impressive, but they're not as deep at that position as a team like Oregon, Texas, Washington, or even Alabama, FSU. Oklahoma wasn't as good as a team as people thought. And I don't really think too many people really believe that the Sooners were going to be in the playoffs come the end of the season. But I got a lot of pushback from Sooners fans. With me saying that Oklahoma isn't a true playoff contender over the last couple of weeks. People were saying that I was hating on this team. I had no reason to hate on Oklahoma. I just call it how I see it. I just try to be as fair and realistic as possible when I give my takes on these teams. And Oklahoma never looked like one of the best teams in college football. And it's evident because the difference between Oklahoma and teams like Alabama, Georgia, Texas, FSU, Michigan, Ohio State is their ability to win close games. You see, even when everything seems like it's going left for Texas, they still find ways to pull out close wins like how they did against Kansas State. Same thing for Ohio State. Elite teams in college football have something that I call the trap door ability. The trap door ability is even when you're struggling to win a game against a team that you should be able to beat, you still find a different way other than your conventional way of being able to win. Your team can win multiple different ways. Oklahoma doesn't have that. It's either they got to blow you out or if you're able to take them to the wire in the fourth quarter, you're going to get them to implode on themselves because they're not a team that isn't able to win games without kicking themselves in the foot a couple of times. Every time you watch an Oklahoma game that ends up being close, they find ways to lose it like they did against Kansas with costly turnovers. And they did the same thing against Oklahoma State. And Brent Venables is supposed to be a defensive-minded coach. Oklahoma State doesn't really have a great quarterback. Their quarterback is solid, but he ain't no world beater. Dylan Gabriel is way better than what Oklahoma State had back there throwing passes. But what it didn't matter because when you lose the turnover battle and you allow a team like Oklahoma State that 
their identity is based on being gritty, being scrappy, being a tough team. You allow a team like this to pull off the upset, especially in a rivalry game like this. When you're in a rivalry game, all the stats, everything that happened previously goes out the window. It doesn't matter about what your record is. It doesn't matter about who's more talented team because these rivalry games seem to take on the personality of their own. And Oklahoma State was just the better coach team, and they were just more well ready to play than what Oklahoma was. Now, Oklahoma had chances to win this game, okay? It's not like Oklahoma State just dominated and blew them out. This was a game that was decided by three points. But Oklahoma was the favorite in this game, and they lost on the road. Another example why I never took this team serious as a legit college football contender. Good teams in college football the difference between them and elite teams is that they can't find ways to win on the road when they're a favorite. Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. Ohio State went on the road, and although they struggled against Notre Dame, they still pulled off the win. Elite teams went on the road. Texas, they beat Alabama on the road. And Tuscaloosa, do you know how great of a team you have to be to beat Alabama when they're playing at home? People thought that LSU was going to be able to beat Alabama this past weekend. And they didn't because LSU isn't an elite team. They're a good team. They're not an elite team. Oklahoma was never an elite team. FSU, they nearly lost to Boston College. Duke gave them a pretty competitive game, but the reason why they were able to win those games is because they are an elite team. Elite teams just find different unconventional ways to beat you. Oklahoma State never had that. And it's going to be a while before I believe Oklahoma truly becomes a championship caliber football team. They're going into the SEC now, next season. They're nowhere close to being on a level as a Georgia Alabama, or even some of the bottom tier, the middle tier programs that are a little bit away from being on that level, such as Tennessee or LSU. When Oklahoma enters the SEC in 2024, they're going to go from being the big dog in a small pond in the Big 12 to being, uh, you know, a little fish in a big pond. Honestly, they're going to be a middle of the road SEC program. I don't think they're going to go into the SEC and they're going to be relevant, but I think they're going to go into the SEC and be like a seven, eight, maybe nine win team at best. Yes, they recruit really well, but obviously they don't have the greatest coaching staff. People want Jeff Levy gone, and I have some concerns about this defense, and this defensive line isn't where they need to be up front as far as being able to compete for a conference title in the SEC. Alabama. Georgia, even Tennessee, all have really good defensive lines. They're all really good up front. Oklahoma doesn't have that. Oklahoma State in the final bedlam ends up giving Oklahoma their second loss of the season and dashing their hopes to make it into the college football playoff. Michigan, when it comes to their sign-stealing investigation and scandal, it gets weirder every single day so apparently the big 10 coaches and athletic directors all want michigan to face some form of consequences there's no way that michigan's going to walk out of this thing unscathed then the ncaa from what their investigations have told us so far they pretty much came out and said that they spent the last couple of weeks on campus at Ann Arbor, looking into everything that Michigan has been doing with Connor Stallions getting other coaches to attend games that he's bought tickets for to record the other team's signs and logos and trying to find a way to get a competitive advantage. But yet, the NCAA says that they couldn't connect John Jim Harbaugh to any wrongdoing, which is really weird to me. So you mean to tell me with you investigating this thing for over the last couple of weeks, you don't find Jim Harbaugh's hands dirty at all, even though he's the head coach? That makes no sense to me. And if you're a delusional Michigan fan, you're going to say, well, Jim Harbaugh didn't know what those guys were doing. Like, that makes no sense. That's bullshit. He's the head coach. When you're the head coach of a football program, you should know Everything that goes on within your program and on your coaching staff. 
So this either means one or two things. Either Jim Harbaugh has lost control of his football team, or maybe this is just a little bit of a cover-up for him. I don't really know how they could be this deep into this investigation, have a bunch of evidence that Michigan was in the wrong of, you know, recording other team signs and using it to their advantage, and Jim Harbaugh not have any say. Like, how does Jim Harbaugh not have anything wrong or any dirt on his hands in this investigation with this scandal? He may not have directly told Connor Stallions to go to the games and, you know, do what he did, but I definitely think that Jim Harbaugh was able to, you know, benefit from having this information. And what sense would it make Connor Stallions buying all these tickets, sending all these guys to go ahead and record other team signs and not use it to their advantage? Somebody had to give you know, the signs and the information that they gathered from attending these games to somebody on Michigan's coaching staff so they could use it. So you mean to tell me that Michigan was able to figure out what teams were doing when plays were called and Jim Harbaugh not being to know about it? So you mean to tell me that they were only feeding the information to the offensive and defensive coordinators? That makes no sense. Like, if you think that Jim Harbaugh's hands are not dirty in this situation, you're really naive. And this is just another example of how the NCAA is incompetent at doing their job. Now, Big Ten coaches, they want not just Michigan to face some consequences from this, but they also want Jim Harbaugh to be punished. Because even though the NCAA hasn't found any wrongdoing with Jim Harbaugh in this situation, the Big Ten commissioner is facing a lot of pressure, according to reports from athletic directors and other head coaches in the Big Ten, to punish Jim Harbaugh for his involvement in this. And if you're the coaches in this situation, you're looking at the NCAA, you're saying BS, because there's no way any head coach could not know this is going on within their program on their coaching staff. And like I said earlier, it either means one or two things. The NCAA is trying to cover up for Jim Harbaugh or Jim Harbaugh has lost control of this football program. Either one of those two things, because this makes no sense. This is like trying to say two plus two equals 12. You're the head coach. You control who you hire. You assign your coaches that you hire roles. And those coaches have to fulfill their job requirements within those roles. So therefore, Jim Harbaugh, he definitely has a little bit of knowledge and his hands are definitely dirty in this situation. And Michigan has to get disciplined. Like, I don't get why Michigan fans keep trying to make it seem like Michigan is not in the wrong in this situation. Just because everybody else is still in signs and you're not the only team that does it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get penalized for getting caught doing it. You see, other teams are still in signs, but they're not going about it the way that you did in this situation. You were the team that got caught recording teams with their signs. You were the team that TCU said that, yeah, we had a little bit of a understanding that Michigan knew our signs. That's why we changed them. Purdue's head coach came out and had some harsh criticisms about Michigan's sign-stealing scandal. And although it didn't work out in his favor because Purdue got blasted when they matched up this past Saturday, Michigan has to face some discipline. And so does Jim Harbaugh. It's just naive to think. That, I've been using the word naive a lot. That's become my go-to word to describe this investigation because it seems like there's a lot of naiveness involved in this. And I don't know if naiveness is a word, but if it isn't, I just created a new one because that's what's going on. Some Michigan fans are naive and delusional about this situation, thinking that nothing was wrong, Jim Harbaugh's innocent, and so is the NCAA. Like, the NCAA is already as incompetent as it is already. So what makes you think that, oh, just because they don't see Jim Harbaugh doing anything wrong means that they're right? Like, the NCAA has came on way harder for Jim Harbaugh doing less, and all of a sudden they want to try to save face with him? Like, something is fishy with this. Either Jim Harbaugh is involved in some cover-up, or 
he just has lost control of what's going on with his program. And if that's the case, if you're Michigan, why would you extend him? Because Joe Clark, I was listening to him last week when he was on the herd. He says that there's a good chance that that extension ends up being put right back on the table. Like, this makes no sense. This investigation keeps getting weirder and more confusing every single time new information comes out. This isn't being overblown. This is pretty serious. Like, these coaches are pissed. And I don't think it has anything to do with how dominant Michigan has been over the last two going on three years. Like, these coaches want a fair advantage. They want everything to be even. They don't want you doing anything that gives you a benefit or advantage over them. And that's why they're upset. And Ryan Day, it came out publicly and it's been revealed that he isn't involved in routing out Michigan. So you can scratch that off the list. Maybe what's a bottom tier team that Michigan blew out that ratted out the schools to the Wolves. But just to think that Jim Harbaugh has his hands clean in this situation, I have a hard time believing that shit. I really do. You're a head coach. You hire these guys. You employ these guys. You're the CEO of an operation. You know what's going on. You know what your employees are doing. And if you don't, then that just shows that you're incompetent at your job, which I don't think Jim Harbaugh is because he's been one of the best coaches in college football for the last two seasons. All right. I think Jim Harbaugh is guilty as just as everybody else is in this situation. Now, he may not have been as guilty as Connor Stallions. He may not have known every single thing that was going on in this situation, but I definitely believe that his hands are just as dirty as everybody else, and it's really confusing to me how these Big Ten coaches want him punished, but yet the NCAA can't connect him to any wrongdoing. This is it for tonight's episode of the JT Sports Podcast. I appreciate you guys for tuning in. If you enjoyed, leave us with the five-star review. Once again, the JT Sports Podcast is not just a YouTube channel. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from, the JT Sports Podcast is available. Leave a like, subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell icon right next to the subscribe button so you don't miss when we upload new content and when we go live. And I will see you guys tomorrow with another episode of the JT Sports Podcast.